0: In just a few short days, America will decide who its next president is going to be. Trump scrambled this week to keep red states red while Biden attempts to flip Georgia, Florida, and Texas with a blue wave. On today's show, why is American media so partisan? And how will it influence the election? Our panel analyzes how the pandemic will affect election night while Shane Hannon takes us on a rather spooky ride through the White House in a Halloween special. Plus, which way will the battleground state of North Carolina fall on November 3rd? The Donald versus Uncle Joe. The reality TV star versus the DC veteran. Red versus blue. You're listening to News Talk and this is Race to the White House. He was only a good vice president
1: because he understood how to kiss Barack Obama's ass. I'm ready to give him a new nickname, the former President Trump. We've done more in this administration than any president in the history of our country.
2: We're in a battle for the
0: soul of the nation. Hello, everyone. I'm Simon Tierney, and thank you for tuning in to Race to the White House News Talk's weekly coverage of the U.S. general election. You can join the conversation on Twitter at NewsTalkFM or indeed at Tierney Simon. Politicians in the United States from both parties relished the opportunity to describe America as the greatest democracy on earth. Earlier this week, Michigan Secretary of State banned the open carry of guns at polling places. A judge then struck down the ban and now voters can pack heat, as they say, while they fill in their ballots. This isn't unusual. Only 12 states in America explicitly ban concealed or open carry of firearms at polling places. That doesn't sound intimidating at all, does it? That doesn't sound like something that would endanger the greatest democracy in the world. In Memphis, Tennessee last week, a polling official was fired after a number of voters were turned away from their polling place because they were wearing Black Lives Matter t-shirts and masks. Is this the type of voter suppression, something that endangers the idea of the greatest democracy in the world? Georgia has become a potential swing state in this campaign, as Biden looks close to flipping it. However, a surge in early voting has led to long queues, up to 11 hours in some cases. Is this representative of the greatest democracy in the world? Ballot drop boxes have been deliberately set on fire in LA and Boston, one of them in a Hispanic majority community. What happens to those votes? Does that sound like the free and fair action of the greatest democracy in the world? What sort of ID is required to vote? In Texas, a state university ID is ineligible, but a gun license ID is allowed. Doesn't that just smell like the greatest democracy on earth? To discuss these issues and more, I'm joined as always by Greg Swenson, former chair of Republicans Overseas UK and Graham Finlay from the School of Politics and International Relations in UCD. Greg, let me start with you. Is America the greatest democracy in the world?
3: Well, of course it is, and I think if you pick a little like points and, and trivial, um, you know, you, you're always able to find flaws. And no one's ever said it's perfect; it's an imperfect democracy. But that's the nature of democracies, as Churchill said. You know, um, so yeah, of course it's the greatest democracy democracy in in the world, and you're seeing the the democracy actually work. You know, in spite of the fact that you know the, the president's opponents basically beginning on the day after the election in 2016 did everything in their power along with the media to overturn the results of that but in spite of that it all worked out and everybody was all worried about Trump was you know an extremist or Trump was a, a threat to democracy no Trump is loud and he's obnoxious but he's not a threat to democracy and it actually worked you know when when any sort of activities by the president Stressed the system or what or was considered overreach, the other branches of government stepped in and it's actually worked quite well. So, yeah, of okay. course, it's the greatest thing. And, and you're always able to find little things, you know, picking on you little, know, some little precinct little in, in the middle of nowhere about having guns or not having certain T-shirts. You know, look, people are a little bit nervous right now in America. And the fact that, you know, that they, you know, by the way, guns have been a part of the culture in the places where you you referenced, there there's rarely, if ever, gun violence. The gun violence occurs, ironically, in the cities where guns are not allowed. I mean, I, I'm from Chicago, where, where there are, you know, where there's very strict gun laws, and how's that working out on the south and west sides of Chicago? So I, I just think a lot of those points in your introduction were, were you know, just sort of unfair or, or misleading. But
0: that's oh, my view. OK, sure. Uh, Graham, let me go to you then. In terms of this love for American democracy, both candidates, well, Trump certainly accuses Biden of not loving uh, the country. And he always, you know, complains that Ilhan Omar, the Minnesota congresswoman, hates America. Um, there is a kind of an obsession with how much you're in love with your country if you're the leader in America, isn't there?
4: Yeah, I think that's the difference. I mean, often people talk about how the U.S. is the greatest country in the world or in the history of the world, and and I think uh, many Americans have always believed that. There's always been this idea that the U.S. is special, it's exceptional, it has this particular divine mission, uh, which has involved a lot of different things, that it's a shining example to the rest of the world, it's a city on the hill. So that runs so deep in the United States that I think both parties, Almost everybody would sort of feel that to some extent. So if you're, you're really concerned about what America does, you know, in the Vietnam War or the Iraq War or whatever, you know, it pains you particularly because you're an American and you identify with the United States. And when it you know, fails in, uh, and fails to live up to its ideals, you feel bad as opposed to if you're completely alienated from your country. Um, but love for one's country is also different from seeing it as the greatest democracy in the world. And I think a lot of people have felt the sharp end of, of that democracy in terms of feeling excluded and having historically been excluded. And that's why I think the attacks on people's patriotism, which have been weaponized against all sorts of people in the past, and especially against, you know, Ilhan Omar, you know, in terms of the attacks on people of color as not really being Americans, right, or, you know, hating their country because they've, they're they disappointed in it. so. I think it's complicated, but but when it becomes that personal, uh, it becomes particularly, I think, obnoxious, like is the word for it. But of course, it has a very serious extent to demonizing your opponent um, and suggesting that even if they are the winner in a democratic contest, their win, um, and Ilhan Omar was elected, isn't really legitimate.
0: Now, in terms of election night and how it's going to play out, I'm interested to get your insight, guys. Um, We're obviously, we're doing a live election special of Race to the White House on Tuesday here on News Talk, And we're sort of prepping ourselves because we're not sure how it's going to play out. Will it be like a traditional election night? I think not, probably. Um, Let me start with you, Greg. Normally, you will start getting uh, projections in at sort of... um, you know 12 midnight UK Irish yeah. time and you'll have most of the swing states done by 3 a.m UK Irish time how is it going to be different this time around in your view I think it
3: might be later I mean it was slightly later in 2016 you know obviously the closer the race the later it is you know the the, the race you know obviously the the outlier was 2000 with Bush and Gore where it took weeks because of Florida but um, and also remember, you know dan rather, um, who who later you know sort of uh, cratered as a journalist um, in, after the two thousand and four election. but he called Florida early and and there were still polls open, especially in the in the parts of Florida and Tallahassee, uh, for example, or the Panhandle that were in the central time zone. So since then they've been very strict about when the media can start calling states or calling the election. So, so, I would expect, you know, since then it's been trending later. And then, of course, you know, 2004 was a very close election. 2016 was a very close election.
0: So, okay. I wouldn't
3: expect anything till later. And remember also, um, Pennsylvania is very unique in that they're going to be counting mail and ballots until November 6th. So, I'd be surprised if we had any real verdict, given how important Pennsylvania is. I'd be surprised if we had anything, you know, by 3 a.m.
0: Okay. But, Graham, I understand that most of the mail-in voting has been done by Democrats. Does that mean that we might see a surge of Trump support on election night when projected results start coming in, which might mislead us into believing that the election is going to go his way?
4: There's going to be all kinds of surges. I mean, different states count in different ways. Some start counting on election day, which isn't a great way to organize an election with massive mail-in ballots. Other states like Florida, and this could actually be quite useful, are, are able to count before. And so we may have a, a result from Florida, which is always incredibly close, closer to, you know, Wednesday morning than, you know, on into November, uh, the way Pennsylvania. I think Greg's completely right about that. These, um, these delays and surges are going to make it really exciting as different counties come in and as different parts of different states come in. But um, we really aren't going to know for a while. I think there's a real concern about um, violence uh, if, you know, and a snapshot in time, somehow Trump is ahead or Biden's ahead. Um, and, and one side, but especially I think the Trump side, start to think that, that somehow he's won and now it's being taken away from him in the coming days. Um, and I'm really worried about violence just because a number of groups have said they're going to go out and commit violence and are going to engage in voter intimidation. I think what might be best for the future of the, the polity. Um, you know, might be an early result from Florida, which um, if it's Biden, I think is pretty much a sign that Biden's going to win. If it's Trump, um, at least it's going to hopefully lead people to hold off a little bit before anybody claims victory. Uh, And it's not going to be very satisfactory. As Greg says, all these delays and so that people in California don't get early returns, which suggests they shouldn't go bother and vote, are, are bad for pundits, but they're good for the democracy.
0: Greg, are, similarly to Graham, are you worried about the prospect of a violent reaction on the, on American streets?
3: Well, uh, yeah, of course I am. Um, you know, look, I, uh, Graham's right. Florida is doing a much better job about early counting. After the debacle in 2000, they really tightened up their, their process there. So hopefully we'll have an early, uh, early results on Florida. And if Biden wins, Graham said, then I think you can basically call the, I mean, not officially, but but we all can assume that Biden will win. I don't think Trump can win without Florida. Um, if Biden loses Florida, then it all becomes about Pennsylvania. Yeah, could there be violence? Look, you know, there's been so much violence in the country just in the, in the past four months without any election shenanigans. You know, so yeah, I, it worries me, and I think that's it's something to keep in mind. Look what happened in Philadelphia, you know, in the last few nights, and uh, and I would expect. That there'll be some urban violence for sure. And, um, you know, especially if Trump wins.
0: Both teams have said that they've got armies of lawyers uh, ready to go. At what point do you think these uh, phalanxes of legal minds are going to be uh, deployed, uh, Graham?
4: Well, I think they're going to be deployed immediately. They're deployed now. we I don't think we've seen an election with so many lawsuits surrounding the minutiae of voting Um, and again a lot of going back to your first question this talks about how democratic the United States really is it's radically democratic in some ways in that they elect the people who conduct the elections every different state and locality has different features all of those things can be litigated and they're being litigated right now but those lawyers are also going to be fanning out scrutinizing the process at as many polls as possible they'll be challenging ballots as soon as the boxes are open they're challenging ballots right now in terms of mail-in ballots. So so they're already on the ground, and, and this is going to be the, the lawyer's election. We're going to see if it's close in some states, some really protracted and, and quite virulent lawsuits, as we saw in Florida in 2000. Um, but I think, you know, in the end, um, if it's decisive in any place, we're not going to see any ba- any lo- any lawsuits which are really going to determine the result.
0: Sure. Uh, Greg, it seems to me at this stage that the coronavirus has really become the central issue of the campaign between the two candidates. I mean, a lot of the places where Trump is keen to keep or gain support, we're seeing a surge in cases. He's telling everyone that they've rounded the corner. I mean, the even Don Jr. was on one of the stations this morning saying that you know the deaths are basically down to nothing. There were a thousand COVID-related deaths in America yesterday. It seems like Trump's message that we're turning the corner hasn't really been able to stick. That's going to be a big problem for him between now and polling day, isn't it?
3: Well, there's no doubt about it. I mean, the, the Democrats and the mainstream media, or I should say, the Democrats and their allies at the mainstream media, have, have not only did they politicize Corona, they 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 weaponized it, and it's what. If Biden wins, it will be what won the election for Biden. There's no doubt about that, about that. If the election was held last January, Trump would have won comfortably. So the real issue is, you know, look, they politicized it, they weaponized it. To, to, to blame Trump for 220,000 deaths is not only dishonest, but it's it's indecent. And and that's what they've done. Now, has it worked? Yeah, good for them. Like, if, if you're a purely tactical, if you're purely trying to win, And they decided that's what the only thing that Biden could run on, because that's basically all he can run on is, is, you know, Trump is mean and loud and nasty and he he failed on COVID. So yes, it's working and it's not going to work for the president.
0: Graham, can you just reply to that? Because is it fair to suggest that the pandemic has been entirely politicized by the Democrats?
4: I don't think it's completely fair. So, for example, Yes. Is Trump responsible for every single one of those deaths? No. The U.S. would have had thousands and thousands of people die, just like everywhere else. Is he responsible for some of them by actively downplaying the, the, uh, the pandemic and by interfering with the entire effort to try and contain it? And now denying that it's a and this is just a fact that it's rampant in the country um, where 42 states are experiencing record cases. No, I mean, this is his fault. Um, to no small degree and is going to pay for it at the ballot box and he's paying for it in a group which used to support him tremendously, which is seniors.
0: Graham Finlay from the School of Politics and International Relations at UCD and Greg Swenson, former chair of Republicans Overseas UK. Thank you both for joining us on Race to the White House. Now, in the past two months, Trump has visited the battleground state of North Carolina five times, a clear indication of just how important it is to his re-election effort. Joining me to discuss the polls there is Anne Gearan, White House reporter for The Washington Post. Ann, what do the polls tell us now about which way North Carolina will swing on November the 3rd?
5: Well simon i wish i i i knew the latest polling has uh biden and trump in an absolute uh dead heat uh statistically tied uh meaning that we really don't know uh which one of them uh ha- has the edge there um, it is so close it's a state where uh president trump uh, has really made up quite a bit of ground uh in in the last uh, month or so
0: um I understand that it's been a red state for a long long time but obama turned it blue turned a democrat in 2008 and he sort of broke that tradition why has it become a swing state what happened there
5: yeah it's such an interesting state it's kind of a lot of, of, of things that are happening in american politics boiled down in in, in one state uh the 2008 uh, victory by by President Obama was an outlier. The the state has gone almost uh, uh, reliably uh, Republican in the presidential uh, going back 20 years. So it was really 25 years. So it was really notable uh, when when President uh, Obama won the state in 2008. And the the Republican victories since then have been very narrow. Uh, in in the state, uh, Trump took the state in uh, twenty sixteen, but only by three point six points. So you know it it was it was very close then. Uh, it's obviously very close now, and that and the uh, state is changing itself. Uh, the demographics are changing. It is no longer a a rural Republican state with with a few uh, medium sized cities. It's now a a heavy, uh, you know, really heavy suburban uh, uh, state with lots of transplants who've gone uh, to, to North Carolina to work in the healthcare and technology fields. It's a booming research center. It is also a big retirement uh, uh, location for people from largely from the Northeast who tend to be uh, more liberal than uh, the state's native born voters. It's also a state that's seen immigration, uh, a a fair amount of relocated uh, immigrants who uh, are you know from all over the place but there are concentrations of hispanic voters and concentration of asian american voters which is changing up the way the the state votes and changing up uh, really up and down the 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 election. We've got a tight race for governor and a tight race for Senate in okay. North Carolina
0: this year as well. That's really interesting. And now I know you hate this question, but I'm going to ask you to call it. Which way do you think North Carolina is going to land? <laughs> I go on. Go on. Um,
5: I, I mean, I think it's it it will it will certainly not be it surprising if if President Trump pulls it out there, uh, and really he has to do so. Uh, it is, it is we, you know, we like to say all the, the battleground states are must-wins, but even the Trump campaign's own uh, modeling, uh, you know, shows that if he doesn't win North Carolina, um, his already extremely narrow path to victory uh, gets, gets tiny. Uh, okay. Five out of the seven potential models that they've been laying out uh, include winning North Carolina.
0: On Guerin, White House reporter for The Washington Post, thank you so much for joining us again on Race to the White House. Race to the White House
4: with Simon Tierney
0: on News Talk. Welcome back, everyone. This is Race to the White House. I'm Simon Tierney with you this hour. Contact us on Twitter at News FM or at Tierney Simon. Okay, quite appropriately for this week's edition of From the Archives, let's wind back the clock. Ask not
1: what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your
2: country.
0: The issue of age has played an interesting role in election 2020. The language that Trump uses to describe his opponent, Sleepy Joe, would suggest that there is a vast age gap between the two. There isn't. At 77, Biden is just three years older than the president, when we work through the maths on this, it means that these two are, hands down, the oldest presidential candidates in history. Despite the tiny age gap, Trump has weaponized his opponent's seniority, endlessly portraying him as some sort of lost pensioner who appears to have escaped from the nursing home. And you know Biden, he can't stand up to the lunatics running his party. He
1: can't even find his way off the stage without him. Look, look what's happened. Yesterday, he didn't know the name. He said, you know, the guy, I think he's a Mormon, right? He said he's a Mormon. He was talking about Mitt Romney. He forgot Mitt Romney's name. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine? Then he didn't know where he was. He said, where the hell am I? Where am I? No, he's shot, folks. (laughs) He's shot. I'm running against
0: the single worst candidate in the history of presidential politics. However, the record of the oldest president in office still rests with Ronald Reagan, who was just shy of 78 when he left office in 1989. But in a masterful riposte during the 1984 presidential election, he turned the issue of age on its head and used it to his advantage against his younger opponent, Walter Mondale.
1: I will not make age an issue of this campaign. I am not going to exploit for political purposes, my opponent's youth and inexperience.
0: (laughs) The United States Constitution doesn't set a bar on how old a president can be, but it does require that a president be at least 35 years of age. However, no candidate has ever won in their 30s. The younger president was... Now, I know you're thinking JFK, but you'd be wrong. It was actually Teddy Roosevelt who holds that record. He was just a whippersnapper at 42 years old when he assumed the presidency in 1901 after the assassination of President William McKinley. John F. Kennedy became the youngest president to be elected to the office in 1961 at the age of 43, just one year older than Teddy. In the long history of the world, only a few
6: generations have been granted the role of defending freedom in its hour of maximum danger. I do not shrink from this responsibility, I welcome it.
0: If you cast your mind back to 2008, You might remember the youth and vibrancy of Senator Barack Obama's campaign for president, or at least it seemed that way in contrast with his much older opponent, John McCain. But the truth is that Obama was actually 47, a year older than Bill Clinton was when he won the office in 1992. On this day, with
1: high hopes and brave hearts in massive numbers, The American people have voted to make a new beginning.
0: And so, back again to the 2020 race. Whether Biden or Trump wins the election, both would be the oldest men to ever win the presidency. For all the current incumbent's attempts to ridicule Biden's age, rest assured that Trump's mental acuity is in tip-top condition, as he recently assured the American people.
1: I said to the doctor, it was Dr. Ronnie Jackson, I said, is there some kind of a test, an acuity test? And he said there actually is, and he named it, whatever it might be. And it was 30 or 35 questions. The first questions are very easy. The last questions are much more difficult, Uh, like a memory question. It's uh, like you'll go person, woman, man, camera, TV. So they say, could you repeat that? So I said, yeah, so it's person, woman, man, camera, TV. Okay, that's very good.
0: People in Ireland are often struck by how partisan the news media is in the States, from Fox News increasingly being characterised as a mouthpiece for the Trump administration to the tradition of openly biased radio shows, Now, in order to understand the US election, it is vital to understand how American media works because it really is so different to European models. Have a listen to this clip from a conservative radio programme called The Steve Dace Show. This programme is so overtly unbalanced that even its sponsorship is coloured by its politics. Hey,
6: maybe you can get it out of the action with America's only conservative cell phone carrier, Patriot Mobile. Cancel your leftist cell phone plan and company and go with Patriot Mobile that shares your values. They never charge you hidden fees. And unlike Big Mobile, they don't send your hard-earned money to the organizations trying to end you, but the causes that you support at the exact same time. Plus, switching is easy. You can keep your phone number, bring your own phone, buy a new one if you'd like. And right now, you can join their family of freedom-loving
0: Americans with a free activation... On other occasions, the same program will openly contradict medical advice. And then, of course, you want a control group study, which we don't have when it comes to masks. Well, we don't with this virus. We do with every other virus
6: up until this one. And they all showed masks don't work, which is why you've not been wearing them for cold and flu season your entire lives, because they don't work.
0: Now, since Trump became president in January 2017, he has done over 100 interviews with Fox News and less than 30 with all the other TV networks combined. He even admits that he binges on Fox News himself. Some of the
1: shows I watched Liz McDonald, she's fantastic. I watched uh, Fox Business. Uh, I watched uh, Lou Dobbs last night, Sean Hannity last night, Tucker last night, Laura... I watched uh, Fox and Friends in the morning. You watch these shows, uh, you don't have to go too far into the details.
0: That's a lot of telly you're watching there, Donald. In fact, his favourite show on Fox News called Fox and Friends is so sycophantic to Trump that this is how one of its hosts, Ainsley Earhart, ended an interview with the president during his recent COVID convalescence.
5: Could I ask you one (laughs) last question? How can we pray for you?
1: Well, I would love that. When people say that to me, it's always a great honour, Ainsley. I know how you feel, and uh, I, it's always a great honour. Well, I re- the Bible really is clear. We need to it. pray
5: for our leaders, and we are praying for you. Many in this country are clinging to God right now. So thank you, Mr. President, and thanks for joining us.
0: Tucker Carlson, again on Fox, has been repeatedly called out for his dog whistling on Black Lives Matter. Instead, they encourage theft and mayhem as if that will help. It will not help. This may be a lot of things,
6: this moment we're living through, but it is definitely not about black lives. And remember that
0: when they come for you, and at this rate, they will. And then there's Rush Limbaugh, one of the architects of modern right-wing talk show hackery. Three weeks ago, the president spent a staggering one hour and 42 minutes speaking live on Limbaugh's show. Remember, this is the talk show host who once said...
1: A little history lesson for you. If any race of people should not have guilt about slavery, it's Caucasians. The white race has probably had fewer slaves and for a briefer period of time than any other in the history of the world.
0: 15 million Americans listen to this guy's show! On the other side, the right in America complains that most of the media is simply out to get Trump, Listen to this from CNN.
2: A return to the Cold War between Washington and Havana. You were not, not just seeing a press conference go off the rails or, or jump the tracks. You were watching a presidency go off the rails and jump the tracks.
0: To discuss these things, I'm joined by Scott Lucas, Professor of American Politics at the University of Birmingham. Scott, um, let me begin by asking you, I suppose, in order to understand the media landscape and how partisan it has become in the States. We need to go back to the Reagan administration, don't we?
2: Well, even before the Reagan administration, Simon, because when I was a boy growing up in the States, I was born in 62. It wasn't what we have today with this polarized landscape. Uh, We had both national networks and then like local franchises, local channels, and they were required to be balanced. Uh, in their political commentary. So if you had someone, if one of their editors came on and spoke on behalf of one political party or on a particular point of view on an issue, they had to balance that up with someone to come from the other side in what was known as the Fairness Doctrine. Uh, But in the 1980s, as you note, that all began to change. It changed initially with a series of legal challenges uh, with plaintiffs who came into courts and said, well, you know, under the First Amendment uh, and the right to free speech, uh, the right of free speech to simply mean that we can put out whatever point of view we we want to say, and, and we're not obligated then to come in and balance it. Uh, we, we can simply pursue our political line. And uh, the Federal Communications Commission, although the courts held out against repealing the Fairness Doctrine, in 1987, they Probably because the prevailing political environment, the Reagan administration itself, uh, did not see a need for that type of balance. They revoked the doctrine. Uh, there was a sort of media story behind this. That the real pressure, in addition to the politics, is that American media was changing very rapidly in the 1980s, that with the advent of uh, cable television, um, satellite television eventually, uh, news became prominent. Previously, our news came in, for example, half-hour slots. And 24-7 news or political commentary, it wanted to get viewers, it wanted to keep and hold those viewers. So initially on radio with attack uh, host like Rush Limbaugh is probably the most prominent, felt no need to observe balance or indeed even to focus on news. Instead, they went straight in for polemic, and that formula helped sort of mean that many AM radio stations, uh, which could not play music effectively, they survived with talk radio and talk radio then in the 1990s, with the Fairness Doctrine revoked, moved to television, notably as you <laughs> introduced it with Fox.
0: Uh, tell me, Scott, when Reagan revoked the Fairness Doctrine in, in the late 80s, was there a public backlash to that? Or did, I mean, if something like that happened in Ireland, there would be outrage. You, you know, I,
2: and although I was in the United Kingdom by that time, I went back to the States quite frequently, and, and there wasn't that type of public backlash from people at large. Of course, there were many analysts, there were many academics, there were journalists themselves who warned that this uh, could cause problems for a uh, decent political culture, if you want to put it that way. But what had happened is that. Uh, well, if it bleeds, it leads, which I used to hear when I started off as a journalist, if it grabs ratings, it leads even more. And people showed a desire to tune in, uh, to listen to a Rush Limbaugh for three hours every day, starting off his broadcast initially by praising Ronald Reagan, later by attacking the Clintons, and not expecting any dialogue, but people just to call in and say, ditto, Rush. Uh, they were quite happy to tune in to their local talk radio stations where a host would try to get a foothold, such as the dang Young Sean Hannity, by railing on about some horrible politician or horrible businessman or horrible liberal uh, and t- on much t- rarer occasions, this. horrible conservative.
0: Sure. When we look at Fox News here in Ireland, we're stunned by how it appears to be a mouthpiece for the Republican Party. When Republican voters or conservative Voters in America, when they watch something on the other side like CNN or MSNBC, do they have the same feelings that we would have about Fox News?
2: Well, when you know, objectivity is in the eye of the beholder, as you quite well know. And so, certainly, someone who is dug into, um, let's say, the political landscape of a Fox—sorry, when someone's dug into the political landscape of a Fox or even further to the right, say, a Breitbart. Uh, and they look at CNN, they're going to pre- be predisposed to think, oh, well, you know, CNN is biased against me. In much the way that if someone watches CNN and they go in to watch Fox, they'll go the other way. But I think there is a danger of creating a false equivalence here uh, between Fox and at least something like CNN International. Um, CNN Domestic slightly different. But the reason why I say this, and I, I need to say here there's a vested interest because I have worked for uh, CNN, you know, as a non-air analyst is that at least with CNN, there is a regard for facts on most programs that you will not have on certain Fox programs. In other words, while CNN will have a political slant, I can look there and say, okay, they at least are starting off with something which uh, is true, or at least uh, is a fair assessment of what the facts are. If I go to certain Fox Uh, news programs, not all of them, because you have someone like a Chris Wallace, who's a superb journalist. You had someone there until recently uh, like Shepard Smith. But if I go to a Sean Hannity, if I go to a Laura Ingram, uh, if I go to Tucker Carlson, I know that facts uh, do not start, do not begin with their commentary. They have a particular point of view and they will... They will twist facts or they will even um, put facts out the door, as it were, if it doesn't suit that opinion.
0: Trump sometimes talks up uh, the ratings on Fox News, particularly Fox and Friends, his favorite TV program. Mm-hmm. Um, how do the ratings compare from so-called liberal slanted TV programs like CNN, MSNBC, etc.? and Fox, or is it just Fox on its own? Is the media landscape in the States not more favorable um, to the liberal agenda than it is to the conservative agenda?
2: No, I, 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 you hear this quite often, and there's a lot of problems with, again, this you know, sharp, as it were, polarization, which is, you know, it's really just liberals who are dominating the media. The first problem with it is, is that even if you say that there is a liberal slant uh, in terms of interpretation on CNN or on MSNBC... Uh, but on both outlets, you will have uh, commentators who come from a conservative point of view uh, who will offer you know, their interpretation. Kayleigh McEnany, the current white, pro- uh, white House press secretary, got her leg up in broadcast media by being a conservative voice on CNN, for example. The second is, is that simply juxtaposing Fox versus CNN and MSNBC is a kind of a reduction in terms of the dispersal across media. Uh, I can go... Uh, at any point, and not only pick up on Fox, but other outlets for very large followings. Uh, sometimes they're in print, sometimes they're more prominent on YouTube. I can talk about a bright, a Breitbart, a town hall, a red state, a pajamas media, uh, even Alex Jones disinformation outlet, Infowars. Uh, now, there are liberal outlets as well, such as Daily Kos, for example. And one might say that the Daily Beast tends to track a little bit more towards uh, being critical of Trump, but to simply use this false argument, no, that doesn't wash.
0: Is there currently, or do you, indeed, do you believe there should be a revival of the fairness doctrine in the States?
2: Yeah, you know, I, I would love to see the idea for some type of uh, negotiation through the politicians to bring back a framework, which is not censorship, but which not only talks about, you know, free speech, but responsible speech it ain't gonna happen. Uh, I know it's not gonna happen because once you take down the framework to try to get that balance, uh, the economy of media, the quest for viewers, uh, the investment of political parties to have outlets they think are favorable to them is uh, is going to work against that. And I think that's true of Democrats to an extent as well as Republicans. What I would like to see instead is a level of responsibility from those who are in the media, but I think the big thing is, is really, at the end of the day, it's incumbent on those who take their news from the media to get literate. Do we want to get into media to get informed? Do we want to get into media to simply go along with quite often, which is a lot of deception and disinformation, or do we want to cut through it? If we make the decision that we want to check political partisanship at the door, that, I think, is the essential first step that needs to be taken, which will get us beyond Fox versus CNN, right versus left. And indeed, all those other divides which I think have paralyzed American politics.
0: Scott Lucas is the professor of US politics at the University of Birmingham. Scott, thank you so much for joining us on Race to the White House.
2: Real pleasure. Thanks so much. Race to the White House
4: with Simon Tierney
0: on News Talk. Welcome back to Race to the White House here on News Talk. Simon Tierney with you this hour. Do contact us on Twitter at News Talk FM. Or on my Twitter at Tierney Simon. Now, once again, we go to the White House.
2: Thank you for calling the White House.
0: News Talk's Shane Hannon joins us once again for another edition of Thank You for Calling the White House. Shane, it is Halloween weekend, so it's only natural, I suppose, that you are introducing us to the macabre. Tell me more.
6: Yeah, what a per- what a perfect topic this is for this week, Simon. But um, I guess there are a number of uh, macabre topics we can we can touch on this week and um, for the week that's in it. But uh, one of the things that came to my mind, I guess, was um, the assassination. So, of course. Most people know there have been four U.S. presidents who've been assassinated. But uh, most people can tell you the story of John F. Kennedy. A lot of people can tell you the story of Abraham Lincoln's, But the two lesser known ones are those of William C. McKinley and uh, James Garfield. So both have interesting uh, stories, perhaps the latter even more so. So briefly on, on the McKinley assassination, I mean, this is a guy who, who uh, was assassinated in broad daylight in front of thousands of people. At a, at a Pan-American exposition in Buffalo in New York. This was in September 1901. So he became the third U.S. president to be assassinated. And it was uh, a young anarchist, 28-year-old Leon Czolgosz, a shy and brooding former steelworker, who assassinated him. So this was a guy who, uh, everything was wrong with the world in his eyes. Uh, he borrowed a weapon, or purchased a 32 caliber uh, gun uh, to assassinate William C. McKinley earlier, uh, earlier that day. So uh, it was a strange one in that McKinley survived the shot. And... Uh, The crowd kind of pounced on Chalgaard after this uh, shooting had happened. and But for McKinley telling the crowd to to kind of back off, they would have probably killed him. So it was a bizarre one. And even uh, Theodore Roosevelt, who was McKinley's vice president, uh, saw such an improvement in McKinley's health after the shooting that he went off uh, on a camping trip. Uh, He he was speaking to the press and said, you may say that I'm absolutely sure the president will recover. Well, he didn't recover, and uh, his condition kind of worsened over the days, and eight days after his shooting, um, he finally passed away. Gangrene had formed on the inside of his stomach, and essentially uh, died from from bacteria and illnesses that came as a result of blood poisoning and that sort of thing after the shooting. So that was the assassination of William C. McKinley. But of
0: course, then that led to the presidency of Teddy Roosevelt. I was saying earlier in today's show... That he became the youngest, still the youngest president ever, um, because because of of the assassination of McKinley. And what about like what what interests me, I suppose, about this is that when you think about it, McKinley and Garfield, who you're going to talk about next, and Lincoln, those three assassinations, they all happened within sort of thirty or forty years of each other, didn't they?
6: Exactly. So Lincoln was 1865, of course, and then Garfield in 1880, 1881 and McKinley in 1901. And the interesting one about those three assassinations, so we mentioned that four U.S. presidents had been assassinated. One cabinet member, Robert Todd Lincoln, who was the son of Abraham Lincoln, actually witnessed three of those four presidential um, assassinations. He was there when his father Abraham was killed in the theatre uh, in 1865. He was there in the train station when James Garfield was shot in 1881. And he was there with uh, William C. McKinley when he was shot in 1901. So a very strange one that uh, Abraham Lincoln's son was there and witnessed three different executions. Um, You mentioned James Garfield, Simon. That's probably one of the more interesting ones. He was in office less than four months. This is a guy, Garfield. Not many people know much about him. He he was brilliant. He was the last president born in a log cabin, So the last of the log cabin presidents. Uh, His father had died before he was the age of two. Uh, Garfield had put himself through college, became a janitor and a carpenter by second year. He was assistant professor of literature and ancient languages. By the age of 26, he was a college president. This guy was off the charts smart, uh, James Garfield. A Civil War hero, a nine-term congressman, um, and one of these people who never really wanted the presidency. But his assassination was extraordinary. So 16 years after Abraham Lincoln's death, we, uh, remember, July 2nd, 1881, he was getting a train from Washington, D.C. to Massachusetts. Uh, and Charles Gitto, who was a man who um, uh, had issues uh, mentally, but wanted to kill... James Garfield, because this is in the middle of um, the different system where people could come to the president's door, literally to the White House, and uh, demand a job from the president. So up to 100 people per day came to the White House looking for a government job. Charles Gitto was one of those. He wanted to be the minister for France. Uh, to France. Uh, didn't get the job, of course. Shot James Garfield twice, but it wasn't the bullets that killed him. So over the next number of months, American doctors at the time, Simon, didn't actually believe germs existed. Uh, they rejected antiseptics. These, this was pioneered by Joseph Lister, for whom Listerine is named uh, an English uh, gentleman. But Americans thought it was bad air and not germs that would have caused all these diseases. On the train station, up to 12 doctors were prodding and poking their fingers into the bullet wound, which did not make his wound any better. Now, the man who, uh, who was over his, uh, his health was a gentleman by the name of Dr. Willard Bliss. His first name was actually Doctor. So he was Dr. Dr. Willard Bliss, an arrogant man, an ambitious man, um, and over 80 days in the sweltering Washington heat, James Garfield, uh, his condition just slowly and slowly got worse. Riddled with infection, he essentially was starving to death. He couldn't hold down food, so his weight from what went from 210 pounds down to 130. In a panic to find the bullet then that was lodged inside him, Bliss called an Alexander Graham Bell, so the man who, of course, invented the telephone, uh, to use one of his other inventions, the uh, metal detector, to try and find the bullet, to no avail, because he wouldn't let him uh, test both sides of his body, just the one. And in fact, the bullet was on the other side of his body. So uh, Charles Geto, before he was hanged, said, yes, I shot him, but his doctors killed him. And uh, to be fair, Simon, wow. he probably wasn't wrong.
0: OK, and tell me, do any of the assassinated, do they haunt the White House?
6: <laughs> well, this is the interesting, a number of people have said they have seen um, hauntings in the White House. I'm not sure if any of those assassinated presidents haunt the White House, but there have been former presidents, so... Um, William Henry Harrison was actually the first president uh, to die in the White House. So uh, he, he apparently haunts the attic of the White House. He's not the only president, uh, former president who has uh, been seen. So Thomas Jefferson, apparently, the third president, and he plays the violin in the yellow oval room. He's been seen there. John Tyler haunts the blue room, proposing to his wife, Julia Gardner. He's been seen uh, as a ghostly figure, proposing to his wife. And you've got, of course, uh, first ladies as well, haunting the White House. Abigail Adams uh, used to hang laundry in the East. Hillary period, Clinton?
0: Hillary Clinton, not just yet. The
6: <laughs> <laughs> not just yet, but you know, who knows? I'd say she
0: haunts Donald Trump in the Oval <laughs> Office, isn't
6: it? But <laughs> well, he talks about her enough, for sure. Uh, but you see different people. Abraham Lincoln appears in different places, apparently. The Lincoln Bedroom, of course, the Yellow Oval Room. Uh, Prime Minister Winston Churchill, in fact, former British Prime Minister, has said before um, that he saw uh, the ghost of Abraham Lincoln in the White House. So it's, it's a strange one, and there have been a number of different. Uh, even Mary Todd Lincoln grieving over her son Willie's death uh, in, uh, I think it was 1862 or 63, she began to participate in uh, spirit circles and seances in the Red Room of the White House. So uh, spiritualism is something that's uh, very familiar to the White House and yeah if if you visit there who knows what you might see uh, especially around Halloween.
0: Uh, Any interesting last words because you kind of have this image from movies that presidents will take their last breath with something very noble and wise to say.
6: <laughs> yeah, and, and history can kind of, I guess, um, make, make the words even more uh, resonant, I guess, change the words over time. But the history books have recorded, actually, Simon, some of these uh, presidents' last words. I, I've picked out a few of them for you. Some of them are normal, of course, last words, some not interesting. But others do stand out for different reasons. I mean, George Washington, the first president, all he said was his well. He had actually got dressed up, so he was dying um, in bed um, at his uh, summer home and uh, the place he went after uh, retirement from the White House, or uh, from the uh, presidency. And uh, he got himself dressed up. When he knew he was on the way out, he actually got himself dressed up to lie in his bed because he knew it was a historical moment, that everyone in the room there was witnessing death of the first U.S. president. There are others as well. John Adams, the second president, said Thomas Jefferson survived just before he passed away. What Adams didn't know was that Thomas Jefferson, his very good friend, and the third president, the man who succeeded him, had actually passed away several hours earlier. So July 4th, 1826, second and third U.S. presidents, John Adams and Thomas Jefferson, both passed away on the very same day. Um, others as well, John Quincy Adams saying, this is the last of Earth, I am content. He actually had a stroke on the floor of the House of Representatives and died in the Speaker's room in the Capitol building. Um, so, so some of them are very interesting. Even John F. kennedys um, he was speaking to uh, John Connolly, the governor of Texas, his wife, Nellie, she said, you certainly can't say Mr. Uh, that the people of Dallas haven't given you a nice welcome, Mr. President, to which JFK responded, no, you certainly can't. Uh, and some of them are a little bit more romantic, Simon. So, mean, James K. Polk, um, his final words, uh, a nice one to finish on. I love you, Sarah, for all eternity, I love you. Uh, Sarah, as you might have assumed, was his wife, and uh, she lived for another 42 years. So, plenty of interesting last words from the US President.
0: News Talk's Shane Hannan, uh, that is, thank you for calling the White House. Thank you so much, Shane. We'll talk to you next week. Thanks, Simon. That's our lot for this week on Race to the White House. My thanks to producer Claire Collins. Do join us on Tuesday coming for a special election night edition of Race to the White House. We'll be going on air at 11pm here on News Talk. so do join us then. In the meantime, thank you very much for listening.